It is a blessing to be here. I am so thankful for this opportunity, and I'm thankful to the elders and the congregation and for my friends from the Christian Student Center and, and just everybody for coming out tonight. And uh, this, just, I'm very thankful. So that said, it was cold. It was not, not like hot tea and blanket cold, and not like we need to go get milk and bread cold. It was, if we don't get firewood, we're going to die cold. It was a bad winter that came on the heels of a bad year. For the Continental Army under George Washington, 1777 was awful. I know we'd like to build them up in our American history classes, but... Really, the only thing he had mastered at this point as commander of the U.S. forces was the fighting retreat. And that was an accomplishment, considering that he was commander of an army of farmers and merchants and former slaves. But as he sits in his log cabin in Valley Forge, snow everywhere, and men sick and dying from starvation, cold, typhoid, pneumonia dysentery and smallpox, he hears at his door. His secretary opens up the door, and in steps a man with a very, very thick German accent. And by thick German accent, I mean he only speaks a little bit of English. And he's introduced with a letter from Benjamin Franklin saying, this is Frederick von Steuben, but his friends call him Sir. And von Steuben makes a deal with George. He says, let me show you what I can do, and then you can pay me. So von Steuben begins to work with the troops through the winter and into the spring. And by the end of spring, the army of merchants and farmers and former slaves that stepped onto the field last year was transformed. When he gave an order, they did it. When they were met with a certain scenario, they performed their tasks appropriately. They entered camp the right way. They left camp the right way. When they marched, they marched in formations. When they had to fall in, they fell in the right way. When the ranks compressed, they compressed the right way. They didn't have to think about it. They just did it. That's the value of discipline. And as a result, the military that steps onto the field in 1778 was one of the best drilled and most impressive armies in the world at that time. And I'm not talking about the British Army. The U.S. Armed Forces after being trained by Von Steuben, were impeccable. I think it's, it, it's, it's interesting to me that it's the 21st day of January. Um, not for any historical reasons, but because conventional wisdom is it takes about 21 days to form a habit. Habits are key in forming discipline in our own lives. So if you had a resolution that you were going to start on January the 1st, and you have followed it up day after day, not missing a day, and being diligent in your self-discipline, you'd be well on the way of forming a habit, and you wouldn't have to think about or make a choice about what you were going to do. You would just do it automatically. And so this evening, and in the next two times I come up here to preach, we're going to be talking about spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. So if you would, please turn to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6.
starting in verse 5. A little bit of setting here. The people had come out from the towns around the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias, named after the, the current reigning emperor of Rome. And there was this itinerant rabbi, this itinerant teacher, who would kind of go from city to city and teach, and he would speak in synagogues, but apparently he had gained enough people coming to listen to him that he needed to retreat a little bit away from the cities, and he goes up on a hill, and he begins talking to them about the kingdom of heaven. And we're very familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, but in verse 5 he says, And when you pray, because the expectation is that the people of God will pray. You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who sees in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So we have this juxtaposition. We have on one side, we have the hypocrites praying in public and, and, and drawing attention to themselves and saying, hey, look at me, look how pious and holy I am. And that, that brings to mind the parable of, of, the, of the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector. They're praying in the temple and one of them is calling out to God and says, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like these other people, not like this dirty tax collector over here. But the tax collector, who to Jews, he's not just the guy who takes your money. He's the guy who takes your money and gives it to the guy who has your, their boot on your neck. Tax collectors aren't just thieves to these people. They're traitors. And he says, but the tax collector says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He says, that man goes away to his home justified. When we pray to God, our attitude is important. Our attitude is important. God, speaking to Solomon in Second Chronicles, chapter 7. Second Chronicles, chapter 7, starting in verse 14. Solomon, he, he, he's dedicated this temple to God, this this beautiful ornate temple that if we take the value of the gold and the silver that was used in the construction of the temple and we we calculate it for the modern value of gold and silver it's worth four times the national debt of the united states at this moment that's a lot of gold not to mention that the fact that he paid for the wood using cities as currency he used 20 cities to pay for the wood for the temple that's that's impressive. So he's dedicated the temple, and he, God is speaking to Solomon. He says, if my people, who were called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven, and I will forgive their sins, and I will heal, heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer that is made in this place. 
when we pray, when we seek God, it is important that we humble ourselves, that we be humble, that we recognize who we are in the light of who God is. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Here we have one of the, the all-stars of the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, who, who writes one of the longest books of prophecy in the Old Testament, and he has these visions of God. And in chapter 6, one of the most holy and pious men of Israel of his day says that in the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. Two, they covered his face, and two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And to one another, they said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I'm lost, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah is terrified. In the light of God's holiness, his humanness, his imperfection comes to light. He realizes how sinful, and not just his own sin, but the... The, the ceremonial uncleanness that was on him because of the people that he lived amongst. Ceremonial uncleanness is a huge deal in the Old Testament. It is ceremonial uncleanness that killed Uzzah for touching the ark. That's what killed the, uh, the sons of Aaron for offering strange fire. Ceremonial uncleanness is a serious sin before the Lord, and he falls down in humility. And in verse 6 it says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. not because of his own holiness. It's not because of his own piety. It is because of his humility that his sin is atoned for. So when we pray, we need to go to God with humility. James chapter 1, verse 5. Love the book of James. James, in his, his tremendously practical letter, he says, starting in verse 5, he says, if, anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of grass, he is passing away. He goes on and, and there is this, this image of, of the, the high being humiliated and the humiliated being exalted. When we ask, we need to ask in faith and in humility. Back to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus continues on the Sermon on the Mount. In verse 7, he says, And when you pray, again, the expectation is that the people of God, the children of God, will talk to their Father. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, for your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask him. I have an honest-to-goodness pagan prayer right here. And the good thing is about pagan prayers is that they don't go, to anywhere. They don't go anywhere. So they're safe to read. It's okay. Um, a couple of notes. Lares, or Lares, is, is sort of like a household deity, and like every household has one, and that they're so small and insignificant, they're not even worth naming. They all just kind of, they're all Lares. They're all Lares, okay? And then there's something called Marmor, and that is an old Roman tradition of, of saying the name of a deity twice. And so instead of being Mars Mars, the tongue gets kind of lazy and just kind of turns from Mars Mars into Marmor. Okay? So Mars Mars turns into Marmor. Okay? It says, help us, Lares. Help us, Lares. Help us, Lares. Okay. Marmor, let not plague or ruin attack the multitude. Marmor, let not plague or ruin Attack the multitude. Marmor, let not plague or attack ruin the multitude. See where this is going? Be filled, fierce Mars. Leap the threshold. Halt, wild one. Be filled, fierce Mars. Leap the threshold. Halt, wild one. Be filled, fierce Mars. Leap the threshold. Halt, wild one. By turns, call on the gods of sowing. By turns, call on the gods of sowing. By turns, call on the gods of sowing. Help us, Marmor. Help us, Marmor. Help us, Marmor. Triumph, triumph, triumph. I'm so glad we don't pray like that. The, the, the Gentiles, and this, is, this isn't just that one prayer. If you find, I mean, not like if you find one in your backyard, but if you go to Rome and look in a museum, there are inscriptions of tablets of, of prayers to deities, not just Roman or, or Greek deities, but I mean deities throughout the world there is this idea that if I repeat this enough times, they're going to listen to me. And if we go back to the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel, what are the worshipers of Baal doing? Calling out to Baal, calling out to Baal, calling out to Baal, cutting themselves and trying to draw attention to themselves. It doesn't do anything. So when we pray, we don't need to be like them, using rote and tired phrases and, 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 and thinking that, you know, I, I, if I just do the same thing over and over and over again, eventually he'll do something. Now, I know what you're thinking. What about the parable of the persistent widow? Well, that's different. See, with our God, because he's real and because he cares about us, we can go to him in prayer and we can be persistent and patient in prayer, knowing and trusting that he will hear us and that he does care for us. 
but we don't pray the same rote, repetitious things over and over and over again because we think that there's some magic in the repetition. The magic isn't in the repetition. There's no magic at all. What it is, it's a father's love for his child. And it's our persistence in prayer that shows that we care. First Samuel chapter 1. In 1 Samuel, we have introduced to us a, a character in the Bible that we don't really get. The Bible doesn't really go back to, but she's so tremendously important because of her faithful prayer. You see, Hannah, the, the wife of Elkanah, was, like many women in the Bible, barren. She couldn't have ch- children. So think of like Samson's mother, uh, Sarah, um, and a number of others. Hannah can't have kids. And in the modern world, you know, we have things that we'll, we'll do about that. We'll, you know, we have adoption, we have foster care, we have in vitro fertilization, and all these options. In the ancient world, you don't have that. In the ancient world, if a woman is barren, it's not because of a physiological or a genetic thing or some health issue. It's because your God doesn't like you. It's because you've done something, you've offended God, and he has punished you, and he is going to make you contemptuous to your husband and your life's going to be awful. That's why you can't have kids in the ancient world. That was the reasoning. And so Elkanah, he's not just married to Hannah, but he has another wife. And this other wife apparently is fertile and can have kids, and she rubs it in. My husband likes me better than you do. He likes me better than you. Not not only does Elkanah like me better, but God likes me better. I'm a better person than you. That's the kind of message that Hannah's getting. And you hear that kind of garbage enough, not just from someone who doesn't like you, but just from the world around you, you get steeped in that, you begin to believe it. Man, if my life isn't going the way I want it to, maybe, maybe God doesn't like me. Maybe because I don't have this, or because I have this thing that I don't want, because I have this thorn, maybe, maybe God's mad at me. Maybe I've done something. But Hannah, verse 9, after they had eaten and drunk, Hannah's not eating. She's too grief-stricken to eat. Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple. Not not Solomon's temple. This is more of a semi-permanent tabernacle. Um, This is the, the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And she was deeply distressed. And she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on my affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall touch his head. Now, of course, Samuel will go on to be the last judge of Israel before the kings are established. I wonder if she's thinking back to Samson's mother, who also committed her son to a similar vow. But it says in verse 12, it says, As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Because she's doing something really weird in the ancient world. She's not praying out loud. 
She's praying silently. She's moving her lips and no sound is coming out. And apparently, in the ancient world, and there's other sources that will kind of back this up, that was weird. People didn't do that. When you prayed, you prayed out loud because you want God to hear you. You don't just pray internally. Um, but this is actually the only reference we have to a silent prayer in the whole of Scripture. But she, Eli observes her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I, I have neither, uh, neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Don't regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, he says, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And then the woman went on her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. <coughs> Hannah doesn't pray like the pagans did. Because these repetitious prayers, they go way back before we even had writing. As long as we've had writing, we've had these sort of repetitious prayers. But she goes to the Lord, and she pours out her soul to God. She gives over everything she has to him. She asks for the son and is willing to give up the son. That If only he would give her a son, she is willing to give him over to the Lord. When we pray, we need to pray with intention, not repetition. We need to pray from the heart and with the desire to give over everything to God. Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, we have an account of the apostles going with Jesus up to Jerusalem. And on the way there, he curses a fig tree because it wasn't bearing fruit in the time, in a place where it should be bearing fruit. It has all the signs of being fruitful except for the actual fruit. And so Jesus curses it. Jesus cleanses the temple. And as they're leaving, it says they, in verse 20, verse 20 of chapter 11, it says, As they passed by in the morning and saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, Peter remarked and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, he says, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, and again, they're, they're in Jerusalem. The mountain he's talking about is Jerusalem. Whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father, will, your father also, who is in heaven, may forgive you your trespasses. 
If there is any mountain anywhere on this planet that God's not going to throw into the ocean, it's Jerusalem. But Jesus says, if you pray and have faith that God will do this, he'll do it. Now, you know, there's a, there's a lot of ink spilled over whether or not this is, this is you know, Jesus' hyperbole. Um, but the point here is this. He says, go back to verse 20. Therefore, whenever you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it. Some versions say, are receiving it. Not that, well, eventually, surely it'll happen. But, but pray with the heart that, that what you're asking for is being done. Has been done. Because if you pray that whatever you are praying for has been done or is being done, it's not a prayer of, well, God, when you get around to it, could you do this for me? It is a prayer of thank you, Lord, for the goodness that you are doing in my life. Thank you, Lord, for it's a prayer of thanksgiving, not a prayer of begging and pleading. And our next point is, is, is foreshadowed here in verse 25 about forgiveness. Back to Matthew, back to Matthew 6. Matthew chapter 6. Verse 9. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. How often in prayer do we pray, Father, forgive me of my sins? Without first taking time to think about who has sinned against me? Who am I holding a grudge against? You know, for me, you know, if somebody cuts me off in traffic or somebody's like, you know, on my bumper, it's like, I'm sorry. Like, I, I've got a Ford Ranger, which previously I had a Kia Rio, but a Kia Rio does not go very fast. It's like, you know, I'll stay out of your way, but don't ride my bumper. Come on. It's made out of tinfoil and old milk, can, milk, milk bottles. You'll crush me. <laughs> and people would ride my bumper, and I would get so mad at this person that I have no idea who they are. I don't know what's going on in their life. I don't know why they're in such a hurry. Maybe they're trying to get to the hospital. I don't know. I don't need to be mad at them. I need to be patient with them. I need to be forgiving to them. You know, when I watch the Nashville Predators play in the Stanley Cup and the refs make a call that I don't like, I don't need to sit around for months going, man, if those refs had called that game the way they were supposed to, if they did their job, refing is hard. I'm sure they did their best. It's a game. It's not a big deal. But I know that traffic and sports probably aren't the things that we hold grudges about. It's when people hurt us. It's when people take advantage of us or people that we love and care about. 
those grudges stick around for a long time. We are very easy to defend those grudges. It's like if you knew what they did, you would see it my way. And if that's the case, if we realize, if we truly realize what we did to Jesus on Calvary, we would forgive. We would be the first to forgive. Matthew chapter 18. Verse 21, then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me that I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I I don't say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 This is a sum of money. Not, not that you could just accumulate through like credit card debt. This is the kind of debt that you, that you have when you mismanage a kingdom. This is, this is an amount of money that you can never hope to work to pay off. This is an impossible debt. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had to, and payment be made. This king is losing money on this deal. Like, you, there, you can't sell a family for enough money to pay off 10,000 talents. So the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me that I may pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master released him and forgave his debts. And that same servant went out and he found one of his fellow servants, owing him a hundred denarii, it's about three months' wages. And when he... Er, hundred denarii, and seizing him, began to choke him, saying, Pay me what you owe. And the servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me that I may pay you. And he refused. And he went and put him in prison until he should pay that debt. When his fellow servants saw that he had been, what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master what had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because, of, because you pleaded with me. And should not you have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in his anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you who does not forgive your brother from your heart. We have to forgive. We have to be the first to forgive. Before we go into prayer, forgive. Forgive first. How much more could be said of of, of men like Stephen or Paul who were killed or abused for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of doing a good thing, these men were mistreated. Stephen, on his, like, as he's having stones thrown at his head, he says, Lord, do not lay this sin to their charge. They don't know what they're doing. 
we need to forgive the way we want to be forgiven. Freely. And, and oftentimes without us even realizing that we've done anything wrong. Because this is a sermon on discipline. I have a challenge for you. Actually, I have a series of challenges for you because we are all in different places in our spiritual growth. If you're not someone who prays every day, I challenge you over the next 21 days, whether you set an alarm on your phone or you put a post-it note on your door or your steering wheel or you tie a string around your finger, pray every day. Pray every single day. Pray with humility Pray with forgiveness. Pray with intention. For those of you who pray, try to take yourself out of it. Try to pray as much as you can for other people. It's very easy for us to be kind of caught up with our own problems, our own struggles, when if we take a moment to take and get perspective, there's a lot of people who have a whole lot worse things going on than what we do. I would ask you specifically to pray for missionaries. Pray for evangelists. Pray for elders, not just of this congregation, but all the Lord's church. Pray for shut-ins. Um, I went to go see Miss Christine later, late, earlier this, or late last week. And you know, Miss Christine, for those of you who know her, she's an extrovert. And being a shut-in is hard on her. Please, please pray for Miss Christine. Last challenge. If you're someone who prays and you're someone who prays for others, I challenge you to pray with, pray with people or pray for people that you don't necessarily know. For those of you who go out and eat and you, you pray before your meal when it's brought to the table, ask your server before you pray, we're about to have a prayer. Is there anything I can pray about for you? The, the times that I have seen people do this, it is more impactful than you know. Never once has anyone reacted rudely or disrespectfully. The worst that I have ever seen is, is no, things are pretty good. That's the worst I've ever seen. So, so when you pray, pray for other people. Ask people around you, what can I pray about for you? And then when they tell you, Pray with them. I think very often we're very quick to say, I'm praying for you. I know things are bad, I'm praying for you. Pray with them. Say, hey, let's pray. Let's real quick, let's, let's go to our Father in heaven. Let's pray to him. I know I'm running a little bit long here. But let me just say this one last thing. If all your prayers yesterday were answered, what would change? Maybe you wouldn't hurt as bad. Maybe your debt would go away. Maybe your sins would be forgiven. But what would the state of the world be? Pray for big things. Pray for important things. Pray for the growth and the spread of the gospel. Pray for peace. Pray for one another. If you need the prayers of the church, or if you, 
if you desire a relationship with your Father, I pray that at this time as we, as we stand and sing that you would come forward. And if you're not yet a child of God, that you would be baptized for the remission of your sins. Thank you.